Welcome to the podcast of Rogue Valley Christian Church. We hope to be a place that connects you to Jesus, encourages you to grow in your faith, and challenges you to serve the world. You can grab a seat, and as you do, if you don't mind turning to the book of Acts chapter 2, you can find verses 42 Uh, through 47, even as we read earlier. But as we do turn there, just remember, we're doing um, a series for the whole month of January. We're taking time to consider how it is that we're to do church. I don't know about you, but if you've gone, but for me, if you've gone to church for any length of time, it's easy to fall into habits. It's easy to get into this process of just doing it the way that we do it, right? We park in the same place, we walk through the same door, we sit in the same chair, we complain at the same time that it's going too long every single week. We just kind of do the same thing, right? We talk to the same people, so on and so forth. And it's my estimation as we read the scriptures that we believe and understand that God wants something so much more for us. And I might add that many people today are being either frustrated or walking away from or being done with the church because we have confused what it is and how it is that we're doing it. Remember last week I made mention it's not a country club, not a movie theater, not a theater, not a whatever else, uh, uh, other thing. It's not a restaurant. It's not a convenience store. It's none of those things. It's church, ladies and gentlemen. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, God gives us some pretty amazing guiding principles for how we do it. And whether we're new or old, whether we've been going to church for a long time or not much time, it doesn't matter. We can all use these reminders that we're supposed to go to church, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, devotedly. Like we go filled with devotion about what we're doing. And devotion gives you this sense like I'm not holding back. Like I'm going to have my heart into all that I'm doing. That's devotion, right? And God desires that we come to church that way, that we do church that way, that our heart is in it. Yes. Last week we looked at Acts 2.43 where there's this reality that while God was in their midst, he was doing amazing things. And so we come to church with a great expectation, like this, we're the, we're the, yeah, we're the people of God, ladies and gentlemen. And as such, according to the theology of the word, he resides within our hearts. And if he resides within our hearts, he does so powerfully. So it makes sense that we should expect him to move miraculously in our midst. And remember, while we wait for the big miracles, We should expect to see the little ones as well. We should expect to see things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And all of these things, God miraculously moving within our midst, we should come to church expectingly, expectantly. Not only wanting to experience these things from one another, but expecting to actually pass them on as well. Well, this week, if we zoom in on Acts chapter 2, verse 44, just looking at one verse, but as it, rela- as it relates to first service, though you might think we would get out early, we're probably not, just so you know. We'll get out when the kids need to get out in our kids' ministry. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, it says this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
Like all who were together, all who, were, all who believed were together and had all things in common. One of the first things that we've got to talk about when we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is we have to understand the context of their experience, like where they lived in cultural history and what was going on and the circumstances that surrounded them is way different than us. Don't forget that the first church was gathering together and meeting together as a church in small groups, most of which were kind of borderline illegal. When we talk about this group in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, this group of believers who were together and had all things in common and shared them with anybody who had need, we got to remember that because of their belief in Jesus, they were probably not able to go to the same stores that they bought groceries from before. Why? Because according to Jewish culture, Jesus at that time was historically not considered to be the Messiah. And if you believed in him, you were kind of ostracized and on the outskirts of your culture. But what we see in terms of a guiding principle is no matter what the circumstances were, God's people were committed to each other in a selfless manner. When they got together, they were just as, if not more concerned for the people around them than they were for themselves. Now, I looked up the word selfless in the dictionary, and it's interesting because the word selfless in the dictionary is pretty tight. It says this, having little or no concern for yourself. Now, we know that practically speaking, that's not reality, is it? Y'all had concern for yourself. I can tell this morning. I can tell, by the way, your hairs are done, your makeups are... I'm trying to think of a term that's not going to offend people. The first term that came to my mind, I can tell by the way your makeup is painted on, but I knew if I said that, <laughs> it wasn't gonna go well, right? Applied. Applied, thank you, Jason. Are you just gonna sit there and tell me the stuff I need to know all morning? I appreciate it. <laughs> I might put you on the spot. So here's the other thing, right? We have to understand in context what we're talking about as it relates to selflessness. Right after first service, I had a high school kid come up to me and said, do you remember the C.S. Lewis quote from the book Mere Christianity? And I'm like, wait a minute, you're in high school. What are you doing reading that book? If you've never read Mere Christianity before, I highly recommend it, but I also will let you know you should set aside a year to do it. it is, it's not very big, but it's real thick, right? That's all I read. But this guy reminded me, and his parents text me uh, right in between service that, one of the best definitions for humility or selflessness is this. Selflessness doesn't mean thinking of yourself or thinking less of yourself. It means just thinking of yourself less. I wrote it down this way. From a Christian perspective, selflessness is not about being concerned for your own, not about not being concerned for your own well-being. It's about maintaining a perspective that places the well-being of others above our own because of both the expectation and example that we find in Jesus. Do you guys just recall that we sang a song just moments ago called Jesus at the Center of It All? Like, that's an important deal. Because if we came up with a list on here are 10 ways in which we can be more selfless when we come to church. Number one, when you pull into the parking lot, leave the close spaces for those who might need them more than you. However, how many of you pulled into the parking lot were like, ooh, front row, that must be for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Number two, when you walk through the door, if someone selflessly is there waiting for you and opens up the door for yourself, make sure you take a moment to thank them and interact with them. If they look at you and say, hello, it's good to see you. Don't get all bent out of shape and think, what do they want from me? They were just saying hi. They didn't ask for your checkbook and they didn't ask you to swipe your credit card on the way in. If you want to, we can provide. <laughs> Tappers right out at each front door. Now, I already know some of you are like, that would be awesome because then I could come to church, tap my card when I walk in the front door, tap my card, send my money, and then walk out like I was there. That's not doing church selflessly. Like, we come up with a whole bunch of lists, right? I mentioned in first service that... Churches are weird, especially churches that have been around for a while. And if you didn't know it, this church has been in existence for some 80 years. Do you guys know that? 80 years. That's a long time. Not 80 years in this building, but 80 years as a church. 80 years of God's faithfulness. 80 years of God working through his people and with his people. 80 years. That's a long time. You know what else it is? That means there's been a lot of people who come and have their seat. Right? Y'all do it. All of you do it. Everybody does it. I notice it, especially first service. I did make mention of this. First service is worse at this than second, or different <laughs> than second service. First service, folks, same people sit in the same place every week after week after week after week. At least you all, second service, you're like, ooh, switch it up. We're going to move back. We're going to move sides. We're going to switch it up and keep everybody guessing. That's the way we should do church, ladies and gentlemen, because we're selfless about the chairs that are ours. First service, oh, my goodness. Now, you might be thinking, I don't think it's nice of him to talk about them behind their backs. I talked about them right in front of their face an hour ago. They get it. That's the thing, right? So we come and we can be self. Like here, I mentioned in first service, like we got, like, do you guys see this whole row is empty, right? And first service, the whole row is empty because, well, that's not my seat. That belongs to the, somebody who went to church here 47 years ago, and it's always been their seat, and it will always be their seat. That's not selfless Christianity, man. If there was somebody who sat here 47 years ago, and they're not sitting here now, there's a good chance they're in heaven. And the last thing they're worried about is somebody taking their seat. Are you with me? So next week, it would be nice if somebody sat here. It would be okay. <laughs> then I looked at somebody on first service, and they looked at me, and they were like. <laughs> and my guess is they didn't want to sit there because they'll get spit on. But that's not why. Apparently, they're not afraid of my saliva. Apparently, what they're more afraid of is being caught on camera. <laughs> See, we're supposed to do church selflessly. And what that means is this. According to the example that we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. If we claim, if we call ourselves, if we embrace this thing that we call faith by belief, if we accept the gospel, if we lean into the reality that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If we believe the gospel, then what happens is that belief becomes selfless living, and it's supposed to be a part of going to church as well. That we come to church selflessly. 
And what I mentioned before is the example of Jesus is actually the best example. We do know this, according to Luke chapter 9, right around verse 23, there was a group of people following him, and he spoke to a crowd, and he said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I don't know if you get it or understand it, but those are very selfless terms, right? That's what Jesus, that's the standard for following him. That's the requirement as a result of our belief. The results are we'll become a selfless people. But here's the deal. What does that actually look like and how does that actually play out? Because I don't think it's fair just to say, so y'all better be more selfless. Y'all better do a better job of being self-denying yourself and being selfless and thinking of yourself lessers and all of the, do you see how confusing it gets really quick? I think the better thing to do is let Jesus be the center of it all and look at how he not only expected it, but also exemplified it. So with that in mind, if you don't mind, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, and that might not mean anything to you, and that's okay. If you have a different favorite chapter, 100% okay. But this one blows me away because of what we see in terms of Jesus's experience. Mark chapter 6, in the first six verses, you can just go there. We're not, just so you know, we're not going to walk through everything. I'm just going to describe what happens, and we're going to zoom in at the end of the chapter. But in the first six verses, we read of a time where Jesus was rejected at his own hometown. Now, this is an important deal, because what we're building up is an experience. Mark chapter 6 is this unbelievable experience of our Lord and Savior and his disciples. And the experience starts with rejection. It starts with going through a very real human reality. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I think, well, it was Jesus. He walked not only on water, but six feet off the ground, and he was perfect, and he didn't experience what I experienced, and if he did so, he did so perfectly in a way that's different from me, and so it's kind of hard to relate. But in reality, he experienced, even as God's word tells us, everything that we've experienced as a man, as God, some mysterious reality, but without a doubt, he went through the things that we went through. And one of those things in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, was the rejection, and not just any old rejection, but rejection by those who knew him well. He was rejected in his own hometown, meaning this, at Nazareth, he was rejected by those who had watched him grow up, those who had seen him play, those who had probably yelled at him to get out of the street. He was rejected. He was rejected by his friends and his family, his community. Now, he wasn't rejected because he had done something wrong or he had done something bad. He was rejected because of what he was claiming. Remember, he was claiming to be the Messiah. And his own people said, there's no way we know who you really are. So just let that sit for just a moment. Rejection and how that feels. And the emotions that it brings up, the tears that it elicits, the heartache that it creates, this is what Jesus was going through. Well, in verses 7 through 29 of Mark chapter 6, you can go back and you'll read of a time with, though he was being rejected by men, 
and by people and by humanity, even his own close friends and family members. He didn't give up on anyone. And instead, he commissioned his disciples to go out with his love and love the world. The same world that was rejecting him, he called his 12 together and he said, so here's the deal. I love the world and I want you to go tell them about it. I want you to go prepare each town and village for my arrival because I'm not giving up even though I'm a bit overwhelmed by this rejection. Even though they've quit on me, I won't quit on them and I want you to be a part of my work in this world. So you go and you begin to tell them of everything that you've seen and heard in me. And so those disciples, they un believably to me, because I don't know if you know this, but at this point in the book of Mark, they weren't very well, like, ready. <laughs> Does that make sense? They weren't professional church people. They weren't professional missionaries. They were barely good fishermen. I'm sorry if you're paying attention, right? They, I mean, they were just human people. And Jesus is sending them out on one of the first moments where he's going to send people out to begin to change the world. These are not world changer people, <laughs> But if they're sent out by a world-changing God, guess what happens? People start changing the world miraculously, right? So that's what happens. He sends them out. And they go out, and they do exactly what Jesus told them to do and experience exactly what Jesus told them that they would experience. And they're blown away, and they're happy about it. Now pause that for a moment because that's them and their experience. They're stoked about the success of the mission, right? Well, at the same time, Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 29 tells us that while they were out on mission for God, the Son of God, who had just experienced some pretty brutal rejection, experiences unbelievable pain. Because we're told in this passage that while they were out doing that, that his cousin, John the Baptist, we'll call him J to the B, just seeing if you're paying attention. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, is brutally murdered. We read it, right? We read and it says that, you know, John the Baptist, there was this party and there was this moment and then he was beheaded and we're like, oh yeah, it's a Bible story. It's hard to teach to the little kids, but it's still a Bible story, right? <laughs> But in reality, we have to remember there's a very real human experience going on. And his cousin, the cousin of our Lord and Savior Jesus, was brutally murdered. Which undoubtedly would have affected his feelings, emotions, and psyche. Don't forget he was fully human and fully God. So he would have been overwhelmed with an unbelievable amount of sadness. See, I don't know about you, but when I bring up the idea that the greatest expectation and example of selflessness is found by keeping Jesus at the center of it all, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can think, yeah, but it's Jesus. He was good at this stuff, to say the least. But in reality, once you see it, it's like, well, wait a minute. He was good at this stuff, even though he was going through the same stuff that we go through. And not just rejection and sadness, but any other emotion that we might feel. And those emotions, don't you know, can affect us in such a way that the last thing that we want to do is give our life away. 
The last thing that we want to do in the midst of hurt, heartache, pain, anguish, and anger, or whatever else it is that we're going through, I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to do is think about the person sitting in the row across from me. And if I do think about them, I want them to come and console me. Does that make sense? And yet what we see in the example of Jesus is something so much greater. Look at verse 30. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So they come back and they're like, look at what happened. It was amazing. Everything that you told us to do, we did it. And when we did it, everything happened just the way you said it would happen. And you can see Jesus going, mm. I don't know if you'll see that in the movies, but in my head, that's the way it works. I did tell first service for the rest of this little sermon message talk thing. Allow your imaginations to run wild and visualize and picture all of it because it's unbelievable. They come back and they tell him about everything that had gone on. But don't forget that Jesus had just experienced rejection and loss. And so in verse 31, he said to them, well, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to even eat. See, what we're supposed to understand about this moment in Mark chapter 6 is it was really busy. And there was a lot going on, so much so that Jesus and his disciples couldn't find enough time to take care of themselves. And taking care of themselves, rest was necessary because of everything that they were going through, whether it was the excitement of a mission trip or the sadness of loss or the frustration of rejection. Either way, it was taking a toll. And Jesus meant to get his disciples and take some time to rest and refresh. Does that make sense? Which is a good thing, yeah? So look at what happens, though. It says, and when they went away, in a boat to a desolate place by themselves, they saw many of them, it says that others saw many of them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, the whole reason we look at the first half of Mark chapter 6 is so that we can understand if there was ever a moment in the ministry of Jesus where it was okay to just forget about the crowds for a moment and take care of yourself, it was here. Rejection, loss, heartache, pain, exhaustion. That's what was going on. And if there was ever a human moment where we can look and go, you know what, it's really okay if Jesus and the boys just, just take a day off, Right? It's okay for them to draw a boundary around what it is that they're doing. It's okay for them to say, you know what, come back tomorrow. It's okay because of everything that they had gone through. And yet Jesus, when he gets out of the boat with his disciples to this place that they were going away to rest. They were going away to get away from all of the crowds to rest, to take care of themselves. When they get there, what they see is a great crowd. And we know the historical context behind this passage indicates that the great crowd could have been upwards of 10,000 people. That's a big crowd, just so you know. And all 10,000 people, they weren't there to watch a show. They were there to get something from him. They all had needs that they expected him to meet. And if there's ever a moment in the midst of it where he could just say, not now, it would be here. But that's not what Jesus does, is it? See, the example of his selflessness is absolutely amazing because not only is it there through any and every emotion that we might experience, but it's there compassionately. Look at what happens. When he went ashore, he saw the crowd, verse 44, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. 
we're going to do church selflessly, one of the first things that we see in the example of Jesus is it's going to take compassion. We're going to have to start seeing the people around us just a little bit differently. We live in a world full of division and difference. We live at a time in the midst of all of that division and difference where not only do people look different, but they act different and they believe different. We live at a time where all around us are voices that are trying to convince us that all of those differences are worth fighting about. And what gets lost in that cultural reality is compassion. The ability to look at somebody who may be different. The ability who look, to look at someone who may have, should have known better. I'll get to that in a minute. But the ability to look at the people around you, across from you, in front of you, behind you, all around you, and see them with the eyes of Jesus. To see them compassionately and understand that, yeah, maybe you might look at things different, think about things different, have different views. But everybody's gone through something. And in my estimation, not only has everybody gone through something, most people have gone through more than just one something, something, something. And in reality, a lot of people are going through something right now. And the something right now that people might be going through might affect the way that they are going through it in a way that you find intolerable. And it's in the midst of those moments that we've got to stop looking at everyone so judgmentally we got to start allowing this guiding principle of selflessness to rule and reign in our life to such a degree that we look at people and what we see is people who might be struggling and we have compassion upon them. We have a perspective of compassion, mercy with an inclination to do something about it, a willingness to do what Jesus did, exhausted, sad, and overwhelmed by everything that he had gone through, which is to say a lot of the things that we go through, and he saw a crowd that wasn't supposed to be there. They were interrupting his retreat. And he did not see them as inconvenient disruptions. What he saw them as is sheep without a shepherd. That is to say those who needed help. And he was willing to give it. And the sense of the story in Mark chapter 6 is he was willing to do say, do so. He was willing to do it all day long. Look at what happens. It says, when it grew late, he was teaching them many things. In verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Jesus saw them with compassion and stayed all day long to try to help them to understand what it is that they were going through, to try to help them to understand what it is that God was doing, to try to help them to understand everything that was going on in the craziness of their life, and they would have had a lot of questions. And so he stays all day long. It's not just a little compassion, it's a lot. And it's not just a lot of compassion. It's a compassion that goes beyond what seems reasonable. Because for me, a lunch break, a snack break, and a dinner break seems pretty reasonable. What was that? Yeah. That really hurt the thighs. Oh. 
To me, that seems, that seems reasonable, but that's not what happened. Jesus cared so much that it was his selfless care and love for the people wasn't going to be interrupted by anything. To the point that the disciples, and you get the sense that Jesus would have just kept going. Now turn, and in closing, let's say one more verse and just keep going. I love that example. <laughs> Jesus, the teacher, he didn't have a red clock telling him that it's 1120. You got 10 minutes before the kids revolt. Like that. He didn't have any of that, and he just kept going to the point that his own disciples had to say, surely there's a limit to how much selflessness we're supposed to extend. And so they, tired, they having their retreat interrupted, they being inconvenienced, they overwhelmed, they not knowing how to deal with 10,000 people, they go to Jesus and they say, hey, it's late. It's getting close to dinner time. They need to go <laughs> because we love them so much. <laughs> and I'm really tired, right? So what does Jesus do? I love it. Here's where it gets real good. If, if we were looking at like how we do church and we're supposed to do church selflessly and we're looking at it on a graph, it's going like this, like this, like this, like this. Are you seeing it? Are you feeling it? It should be overwhelming you a little bit. It, it goes like this, like this, like this, like this, and then it goes like this because this is what Jesus does. Look at what happens. He said, they said to him, send them away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, I have a better idea. Why don't you give them something to eat? Now, we know the story, right? It's the feeding of the 5,000. It's super famous. We know the story, and we're like, oh, the loaves and the fishes. It's going to be so sweet. It's going to be wonderful. They're going to take these little bits of bread and fish, and they're going to, like, this whole crowd is going to eat. But we forget the background, don't we? We forget the background of rejection, sadness, loss, exhaustion, unfair expectations. We forget all of that. And yet that's all in play here. And so when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, why don't you give them something to eat? They did not expect him to say that. What they expected was for him to validate their not selflessness, which is, we've been here long enough. Go. Right? And he says to them, here's another idea. You could give them something to eat. And they catch the impossibility of it all. And they say to Jesus, how, what, how, there's a lot of people here. It would cost two-thirds of a year's worth of wages for us to feed them. Are you expecting us to do that? Because surely the needs are so great, such an expense would be a waste of our resources. Jesus doesn't cut to the financial chase at all. Instead, with their financial hesitation fully communicated, he says to them, this is so good, and he said to them, well... How many loaves do you have? Do you remember when I said just a second ago, selflessness is going like this, and then it's going to go like that? Because I don't know. Pause for just a minute. If you're the disciples, this crowd, 
10,000 people, they should have known better. They should have planned better. Now, everybody knows when you go to a desolate place and Jesus is going to start teaching, we don't know when he's going to stop. You should probably bring snacks. Some water bottles, lunch. Might even need to bring an electrolyte packet. It's really hot where they're at. They should have been more prepared. They made their bed. Now they got to sleep in it. That doesn't sound very compassionate nor selfless, does it? And yet practicality will always try to convince you of a way out, right? Because selfless compassion, selfless love is never very practical. It's always ridiculous seeming. So much so that Jesus asked the disciples, well, what do you have? <laughs> so can you imagine the conversation? Surely he can't expect me who prepared ahead, who took care of his own needs, and then we forget that, well, wait a minute, they have five loaves and a couple of fish, but the other gospels tell us that they didn't have those on their own. They got them from a little boy in the crowd. Hey, kid, come here. I don't know if that's how the disciples sound. Because <laughs> I'm quite sure when you read the Bible, you don't read creepy voices. But there is a moment where they see a little boy who's got some food, and they're like, hey, can we borrow that? And so then they go and they represent it to Jesus as if it's their own. And surely he knows that one of the guiding principles in our world is you can't help somebody else until you've helped yourself first. Well, it doesn't matter if it's a guiding principle in the world or not. It doesn't seem to fly with the scriptures who seem to actually expect something completely different, and that is this. Well, what little do you have? Let's give it all away. Because that's what Jesus asked them to do. What do you have? And they said to him, We've got five loaves and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. The other gospels tell us that he told the crowds, he told his disciples to tell the crowds to sit down in groups of 50s and 100. And I suggest to you that's organizational. I suggest to you that the miracle happens in a way that is more practical than sometimes we think about it. Because it says this, so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. I don't know about you, but in my mind, I've always read that like, okay, Jesus takes the little that they have that is not nearly enough. He holds it up to heaven and he prays and then he gives it to the disciples and everybody eats and is satisfied. Do you guys remember that part of the story? Everybody ate and was satisfied. When just a little snack would do, they got a full meal that brought about a full stomach. Does that make sense? But there is no way, there is no practical way in the world that that could have happened just all personally, like that. That's the way I'd want the miracle, right? Lord, if you're going to expect selflessness out of me, I want miraculous selflessness that says, I'm going to give you my bread, I'm going to give you my fish, you're going to give it back to me, I'm going to throw it up in the air over the heads of the crowd. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't fall. I'm going to throw it up in the air and it's going to miraculously get spread out to 10,000 people and everybody's going to go, this is the greatest loaf of bread that I've ever seen. Like three ingredients, no rise, sourdough. It's so good. You guys not pay attention to Instagram? Bread recipe. This is why we take too long. Jason, if I'm here, and you're here. Doesn't that make this our time? 
And surely there's nothing wrong with a little Bible study on our time. <laughs> but instead, what happens is this. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. Practically, you know how that worked. Without a doubt, every disciple had to take the little that they had that was not nearly enough, give it to Jesus. Jesus took it, blessed it, multiplied it, gave it to the disciples. The disciples then went out to the groups of 50s and 100, and, he gave, and they gave it all away. And when they gave it all away, they realized, wait, there's still more groups that need food, and I don't have any more. Well, where did you get the food the last time? From him. Okay, go back to him and get some more. So they go, and they get more, and they give it away. You see, we sometimes read the miracle right out of it. And in reality, there's this back and forth thing. And isn't that the key to doing church selflessly? It's not just recognizing that we got to believe in Jesus and trust that that belief is going to change the way we live our lives. It's not just enough to say that, okay, now we're going to see people with compassion. There's a, there's a sense that not only that, we got to be willing to, to give him the little that we have, which is probably not nearly enough to accomplish all that he needs to be done, but we're still going to give it. There's that. But the big requirement is when we're tired and empty and out of food or out of whatever it is that everybody needs, we got to keep going back to him. And when we get from him what he wants to give to them, we got to then take it and give it all away. We can't go two for you, one for me. It doesn't work. Because if we go two for you and one for me, what's going to happen is we're always going to have something and we'll never see our need for him. Because that's the key to selflessness. It's not just us pulling us up by our bootstraps and saying, I can do this. That's not it. Didn't work last year, and it's not going to work in 2023. Instead, what we got to do is be willing to go back to Jesus moment after moment after moment after moment. Can I keep going? After moment after moment after moment and taking whatever it is that he gives us and enjoying it while we have it, but knowing that he meant for it to be given all away. And then we give it away and we recognize, oh, man, whoa, I'm empty. Well, I better go get some more. And here's a beautiful story. He's got plenty to give away. I don't know why my voice does that. He's got plenty to give. That's the point in the passage, ladies and gentlemen. If we're going to do church selflessly, not only are we embracing the expectation of Jesus, but God in his great love for us has given us the best example from Jesus. And I got to tell you, I picked this one because it's my favorite. The Bible is full, the Gospels especially, are full of examples of Jesus expressing selfless love. If you don't like this one, there's two issues there. You should like it. Number two, <laughs> there's plenty more that you can look at and get these same ideas. These same ideas that change as Doug was speaking of, the way we do community, the way we do togetherness, it changes everything. Though our circumstances might be different from the early church who had no choice but to share their stuff because they couldn't get any more stuff, we'll still end up being in the same place. A group of people that are actually being just like Jesus and not just talking about it, but living it out to where people are actually known, noticed, cared for, and helped 
with the miraculous compassion and provision of God working not only in us, but also through us. Amen. Why don't you stand for just a moment, if you don't mind. I mentioned a first service, and I'll mention it again. I think that 2023 is going to be an amazing year for Rogue Valley Christian Church. And I think that because of what it is that God has us going through. This whole idea of how do we do church and spending week after week after week in the month of January trying to figure that out just a little bit better and be refamiliarized, get closer, embrace some of these guiding principles i got to believe that they will manifest throughout the rest of the year in such a way that people experience the love of God like they never have before, not just in here, but out there as well, as we not only do church here, but we're also being the church out there. And if we do that, guess what? Not only do people come face to face with the love of God for them in a way that maybe they never knew existed, but at the same time, God is glorified and magnified in our midst. 2023 is going to be great because he's a great God and he wants us to do church in a great way. Thank you for listening. For more information about Rogue Valley Christian Church, please visit our website at www.rvchristian.com.